Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. It's widely accepted diverse teams are more likely to be successful. It's certainly proven to be true when it comes to profitability. But what if a diverse team leads to diverse opinions, which leads to a lot of tension? Everyone gets on everyone's nerves. You all know exactly what I mean. My guest today is here to help. Psychologist Rian Norman has 20 years' experience working with organisations to develop their leaders. She runs her own practice helping leaders and teams face complex challenges and to help them all be high-performing. So I've asked her to join the podcast to talk about what to do when your top performers are squabbling. Rian Norman, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. When we first met, we covered so many issues that when I was thinking about this interview today, I was like, I don't even know where to start. So how about I start with how and who you work with? So I, as you know, I work as in organisational psychology. And when I'm asked what that actually means, I usually explain that is just about understanding how human behaviour works and looks in the workplace. So specifically though, I generally work in two ways. One is working with senior leaders as a coach, working with them to really think about their own leadership, helping them understand their leadership more and just helping them be really more effective in creating the teams that they want to create. And then the other way I tend to work is with leadership teams. So, you know, helping teams look at themselves and understand, you know, what's working really well for us right now, What's getting in the way? And and most importantly, what are we trying to achieve as a collective? And then helping them hopefully find their way forward. So I want to explore a tricky topic today, and that is tension in a high-performing team. Mm. I was talking to a friend the other day called Michael who was seeking advice about his executive leadership team, which was extremely diverse. And he's very proud that he's got a very diverse leadership team. But there's tension in it. And that was an unintended consequence. But, but in, in many ways, it sounds completely logical that if you've got diverse opinions, you're going to have diverse teams. That's right. And the tension ensues, right? That's spot on. It's really common. It's really common. I think firstly, we, we've got to shout out to Michael because, you know, he's done well then to create consciously a diverse team. That's definitely something we talk to leaders to bear in mind. And it is logical. We know easily, you know, the amount of research that points to having diversity in teams and diversity in the very broad sense, right? Not just gender diversity, of course, but, you know, the value of diversity in teams in terms of beating group think, in terms of bringing more breadth of experience, you know, increasing innovation in teams. So there's obviously a lot of value, but of course, when you throw a whole bunch of people together and expect them to work cohesively and they are very, you know, distinct individuals with different outlooks on life, of course, you're definitely going to get some tension there. I guess the trick here is 
that tension is not always bad. And so how as leaders can we work with that tension constructively? I think that's the key. It made me reflect on one of the reasons then that you you might get an echo chamber or you might tend to employ people that are similar to you is because if you've got quite a lot to do and you've got a clear vision for it, the simplest and fastest way is to get a bunch of people that are just going to agree. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and I think it's a trap. You know, I think that happens in two ways, Helen. There's, there's, the first is, you know, we all actually are sort of vulnerable to the what's called the similarity bias, the like me sort of trap. And that is, you know, we know the feeling when we sit down with someone for the first time, be that a candidate for a role in my team or someone socially, and, you know, it just flows. There's that instant click and rapport. And not always, but often that can come from there's a lot of similarity in terms of our perhaps background or the way we view the world or we've got shared common interests, you know, common ground. It's tempting for leaders to kind of lean into that and sort of hire for people that they do have that sort of flow with. And I think the second way that it can happen as a trap is what I hear described as we're looking for culture fit, right, in the team. We want to bring in someone here, you know, particularly if a team has been existing for a while, there's been some long tenure there and things are smooth, they're working. You know, we want to bring in someone who will work with us. It'll fit, they'll gel. And of course, yes, it's very tempting to to go for that candidate over another one because we've got to get stuff done here and we can't risk, you know, rocking the boat. But of course, that does sort of lead to the echo chamber you describe um, if we're just hiring for this homogenous sort of profile of person. All right. So I've got my high performing team and there's tension. I don't have a lot of spare time to manage this. And if you're like me, not a lot of patience for it either. Um, <laughs> what, what do you do? It's tricky. It's, you know, leaders are spread so thin and often they've got busy you know, to-do lists themselves. And then they've got this whole bunch of people that are looking up to them and and often there's a bit of this tension or, you know, dynamics are playing out. So it's like part of you might be thinking, I just can't you all just get along and sort it out yourselves? I think partly we need to take stock though. And I, I do encourage leaders to just pause and think about their role in this. You know, that there is a responsibility, a part of the role that they have as the leader of this team to help the team not hold their hands and make sure everyone's playing nicely, but to create the right environment so that people are working constructively together. They don't always have to be best friends. But I do have a role as a leader to make sure that the environment is right. And so I think, yeah, if you find yourself in this situation and your team aren't maybe getting along as well as they could be, I think it's helpful to try to pinpoint, you know, What is maybe the root cause here and what exactly is going on? So whilst you're busy and delivering, I think try to observe the team at the same time. You know, see it playing out in action, whether that's when the team's together in a leadership team meeting or whether you see particular dynamics between maybe two or three people. But I I think it's helpful to note, you know, there's different types of tension. So is it that there's this relational, interpersonal tension, conflict going on, and maybe that's just a function between two people and they just totally clash? That is difference in values, difference in personality type, whatever it is. Maybe it's relational. That's good to know and that's very different from something that I would describe as task conflict. So that is something, it's actually, they don't have a problem with each other as people, but there is tension because we have competing priorities. Or we've got very different ideas about how we should be delivering this outcome as a team. 
So I think it's important to distinguish between those two things because that then allows you to take an appropriate approach to address, you know, the root cause of those issues. Let's take the latter then where it's task-orientated tension. Mm. I'm the boss. Is there a world where, because I I think I've seen this before, I think that's excellent. Task-orientated tension in my leadership team means, you know, a bit of competitiveness. Mm. It's okay. Mm. What do you... What do you say? Yeah, so I think I think there's merit in that thinking. I think it's the difference between when is that healthy and when is that problematic. So let's let's look at it when it's healthy. We know that healthy task conflict and how it looks in practice, for example, is when we can challenge each other to say is this good enough or are we accepting the status quo here? So I think that's an example of behaviour that as a leader, you would want to encourage, you would want to foster and allow the team to play out a bit. So that challenging each other around, could we be doing this better or differently? And that's not about pointing the finger at one person on the team and saying, you're not doing good enough. But as a group, can we ask ourselves that question? I think that will bring about tension for sure. But it's the right sort of tension for a team that needs to, to grow and continue to improve I think another version of that healthy tension is what I describe as sort of having frank debate of ideas or of issues that are happening. So that frank debate means we can sit around a table as a group or have, you know, one-on-one dialogue with each other as peers and say, right now we've got different views on this particular idea. You've brought a particular idea to the table. You think we should spend this money around a technology upgrade or I think we should spend that money around marketing campaigns and, you know, let's have a frank and open conversation about the merits and about the risks and, you know, talk about it in a calm and constructive way, noting that my idea is not me. So I need to delineate those two things. And also I know that even if you disagree with me, I can count on the fact that you respect me and, you know, that there's merit in my role and my contribution here. So I think as a leader, you're right, that tension is really helpful and important as long as it stays in that healthy zone versus tipping into that problematic zone that we've all experienced at times. I'll get back to the personal conflict, but how is my idea not me? I think this is a really key one. I see it come up quite a lot. Actually, Adam Grant talks about this in his book, Think Again. You know, he he describes this importance of all of us, whether we're leaders or, or, you know, not, that you know, we we can attach our ego to our ideas sometimes that, you know, if I've made a suggestion and others criticise it or, you know, there's very good merit behind it, but actually it's the wrong time. I think it's important that we just allow ourselves to recognise that I can come up with a suggestion and if that suggestion isn't, you know, going to be the one that the team run with right now, that's okay, you know, that it's not a necessarily criticism of me inherently. And I think just by making that subtle shift in our thinking, we can remove some of the threat, you know, that response that sort of gets us in defensive mode if it turns out that our idea isn't received the way that we'd hoped. Yes, because as you were talking, I was like, okay, that always very, very practical, plausible and good advice. But if I've gone into a meeting with an idea that I've researched, I've emotionally connected to, the chances of me backing away from that position is very slim, but you've just given me the answer. Well, it's interesting because on the same hand, we need people who are passionate and who are going to be advocates for their point of view. And, you know, especially women, and that's something that, you know, I do see and talk about a lot. 
So I think, you know, the, the takeaway might be, of course, you know, have your ideas, research the hell out of them, be prepared to present them, but you don't have to live or die on that hill. So it's having some wisdom around it. And I think as a leader, making sure that the whole team appreciates that this idea is not about the idea itself, is will it help us to achieve our collective goal? You know, so everything should be evaluated against that. What are we ultimately here to achieve as a group? And whether it's an organisational mission or a deliver a project or whatever it is. So if we can lift our sights to that ultimate goal, that I think allows us to say, okay, well, this idea was one idea. Others, you know, this isn't the right one for right now, but, you know, we have to remember what's the bigger picture here too. We did an interview about a month ago with um, a head of a radio station, Tom Malone, and a former executive producer of 60 Minutes and Today Show, et cetera, and he was an excellent advocate for leading through consensus, you know, setting the strategy, setting the framework, and if it didn't fit into that, then you've all signed off on this, then, you know, it's easy to walk away from an Mm. idea if you agreed to the original idea. I'll, I'll jump in on that because I, I, I do think there's beauty in that idea because it offers a way forward and it, and it offers a, a foundation for teams to say, right, we're, we're all on the bus, right, with this thing that we agreed. So we can come back to that as our safe point, as our compass. The challenge with that is I think a lot of teams need to work through and, and the leader has a big role here to play around decision making. You know, on what things do we all need consensus? And there might be some key ones. And many things, though, won't sit in that bucket. So if you think about it, you know, we've all got our respective roles to play and our respective accountabilities. So what am I ultimately, you know, on the hook for and what can I make a call on? By all accounts, I want to hear people's views, but I might choose to disagree with you and make the call. And that's okay because we've set that accountability and that decision-making authority in place. Without that clarity of what is what do we need consensus on versus when can I consult but ultimately, it's this, this call is my call. And, and once we've had the discussion and I've made the decision, well, we, we all need to then be supportive because otherwise you get that sort of, you know, out of the room, mm. passive kind of resistance, which only just eats away at, at teams' trust and, and productivity. So I think it is, it is quite a, a nuanced one, but I think decision-making clarity is a really key one for high-performing teams. Conflict, personality conflict. It's, I think, probably the most distressing and the most difficult to manage. And it's particularly challenging, I think, in teams when it's gender-based. And when I say gender-based, for men it's perplexing when senior female executives don't get along. For senior female executives, it's quite painful. What are you seeing and what advice do you have? The research is mixed. I don't want to make any sweeping statements. But I do think we obviously know enough about these socially constructed gender norms of behaviour. And also, you know, there is some research that sort of talks to the differences between genders around two things. One is how the different genders approach conflict and respond to conflict. And the other is communication style. And of course, we know, we all know, from lived experience, you know, communication style can absolutely make a difference when it comes to either neutralising or accelerating conflict. So, you know, a couple of things I think are helpful to bear in mind. So there are some, some studies that show that women do have quite a strong set of skills around adapting behaviours that, that are appropriate for a particular context. So, 
by that I may have given an example. You know, if you if you as a woman kind of see a dynamic playing out in terms of the context, reading the room becomes really key. And I'm not going to come in with a sledgehammer necessarily if I know that that's not going to get the right outcome. So there is some research that suggests that women do have a strength in that ability to adapt to the right context, which then facilitates a better outcome from conflict. So I think bearing that in mind is quite helpful as a female leader if I can back myself to say I can probably navigate this quite well. And as a leader, if I've got women in my team, I'd be wanting you know to ensure that they can play that role and support the team as well without necessarily putting it on the women as their sole responsibility. And then secondly, in terms of communication style, so again, some research would suggest women being slightly more relational in their communication style. That means I bear thought as to the impact of my words on the other person. And, you know, men potentially more direct in terms of, you know, let's not fluff around, let's let's get the message across. And so, again, what's the takeout here? I think without trying to make sweeping statements, I think the goal in terms of communication for me is about two things. It's about hearing the other person and being heard. And if I can use a communication style that facilitates both of those outcomes with a peer that's really just driving me mental right now, if I can adjust my style so that I can both hear them and really listen and understand where they're coming from, as well as be heard and ensuring that my point of view gets across. I think that, yeah, understanding that there is some gender differences in those things and how they play out can be a good starting point. It starts with awareness. Have you ever been in the middle of that kind of situation where you're working with a colleague that you admire and you are required to work closely with, but for whatever reason that relationship is not working? Yeah. And you lie awake at night going... I've tried this, I've tried that. Mm. Have you ever been in that situation? Absolutely. I think we all have. We can relate. I think if I reflect on some of my earlier career experiences too, I think the the challenges that I had, if I I think back to one particular dynamic, it was both issue to do with status. So this person was a lot more senior than I was, as well as gender, male, um, male dominated environment as well. And the personality style, this was someone whose communication was incredibly, to put it lightly, very abrupt, um, very direct, but also with, to my point before, zero interest in hearing, right? So I think a lot of my difficulty in that was this person has no interest in genuinely hearing what I have to say. And how am I supposed to keep showing up and giving my best when it was abundantly clear that that was going to be the situation? So that, that creates real problems, of course, because your engagement, your productivity, and then over time, if you allow it to, as it did with me, unfortunately, starts to really erode your, your confidence and your ability to, to back yourself. Because if no one's listening to you, then maybe what you have to say isn't that great after all. Yeah, that inter, inter-office conflict, regardless of gender, is um, quite debilitating. And mm. as we mentor hundreds of women every year and get them to list before they go into a mentor session their personal challenge. And you can imagine how often that kind of issue arises. Do you have any basic kind of recommendations for anyone listening right now going, I just don't know how to deal with this colleague anymore? And I'm trying. Like, I mean, the assumption here is that we're trying to make the situation better. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Good intent, right? And I think 
is the thing. There's often is good intent and no relationships, you know, start out this way. So this, that's the other thing is how did it get to this point? And it definitely isn't just gender too. You're, you're spot on. It, it, you know, it could be any number of factors that have led to that sort of tension. And to that point, probably my first point of advice is actually that, you know, the root cause, trying to pinpoint, you know, think back, what what is really going on here? What What is it that I'm is making me feel really uncomfortable? Is it about the person themselves that I'm taking issue with that is really just not sitting well with me? Do I disagree with their values, their way of behaving, um, their judgment? You know, is there something kind of fundamentally there that I really take issue with? And look, if that's the case, that the advice then becomes about, well, you know, is this a relationship you can avoid or minimise or is this a relationship you've got to make work to help you deliver in your role and to deliver what the team needs to deliver? So if it's the latter, I think that presents a whole other set of things to, to have to navigate. You know, do you talk to your leader about this? How do you get advice from others who seem to get along with this person? How do they work with them? But most importantly, if I am going to be in it for the long road, how do I manage my own boundaries? How do I protect myself? Because if my mental health or well-being starts to get impacted or my ability to do my job gets impacted, that needs to be a non-negotiable. So that I think requires some real intervention, whether that's yeah getting some mediation or some help from your leader or trying different strategies. So I think sort of stepping back out of the day-to-day where we're just all under pressure, let's be honest, and actually trying to have an open conversation, what I'd call a reset with that person, and just frame it up with them to say, you know, something at the ends of, like I've noticed lately that we're not quite on the same page. Can we spend some time just understanding? And then will always start with help me understand, right? How are you finding things? You know, what's happening? Is there anything I can be doing differently, et cetera? But very quickly being able to then sort of pivot and say, you know, here's some things that I think would be helpful for us moving forward. So I think, you know, don't underestimate the value of just sort of trying to have that reset if it's not that real personal kind of dynamic that we were having problems with before. So I'm the boss and I've watched this going on and I know there's faults on both sides. Mm. What do I do? Can I go and ask one or both to instigate a reset conversation? Can I demand a reset conversation? I don't find demanding gets uh, much (laughs) by way of results. I don't know about you. It's kind of like working with my seven-year-old, It works really well for me. (laughs) (laughs) Gets good compliance, not good commitment, unfortunately. So, yeah, look, if I'm the leader in that situation do the observation first and come up with a theory about what you think's going on. You know, is it task? Is it that they're just clashing as people? I think one-on-one conversations firstly to hear each person's side is really practical. Yeah, I would start there. And, you know, hopefully as a leader, you have established kind of good regular check-ins with your your people one-on-one where they feel comfortable, to be honest with you. Because if you haven't got that, you're going to be fighting uphill, right, to try to resolve this. So I think starting one-on-one firstly, I wouldn't necessarily drag them into the boardroom and say, right, we're locking the doors until we've sorted this out. Um, But I think gather some insights first. Maybe also ask from some peers around them to say, hey, have you observed anything? Um, You know, what do you think might be happening here? I think it's about gathering that, that information. And then absolutely, I think there needs to be a voice from you as a leader here to say, you know, bring it back to what we need to achieve together, your concerns about what's playing out, ask them what they think would help and what they need from you. And I think that's something leaders could do much more of, Helen, around what do you need from me here to support this, to be working? Maybe they need you to weigh in and give some clarity on something. So I think always be prepared to look, you know, hold the mirror up and look at yourself as well. One thing that I've been talking a lot about is passive aggressive behaviour. Mm-hmm. It's this 
simple, insidious, exists everywhere. It's in emails, it's in conversation, and it's always been okay, right? It's not really been a major problem. The bad behaviour was yelling and screaming Mm. and insulting and attacking. I mean, I don't know what that says about my career, but um, that was bad behaviour. Passive-aggressive behaviour in some ways was what you lent on to avoid conflict and avoid the bad stuff. Mm. Um, But I think we know a bit more about that now and how dangerous that is. Is that fair to say? Absolutely spot on. I think, you know, when we describe problematic tension, I describe it in two categories. The overt tension, which is what you're talking about, that sort of, you know, you can spot it a mile off. There is raised voices. There is exclusion from, you know, things. There is uh, disrespectful communication. You know, it's it's very clear and it's very uncomfortable and it's it's damaging for sure. But the beneath the surface tension, the stuff you're describing in that sort of passive mode is equally insidious, both actually in terms of eating away at a team's trust and therefore their ability to work constructively together. If there is a whole lot of back-channeling happening, if, you know, I, I on the one hand, you know, agree with a decision in the meeting, but then very quickly I'll start resisting it out of that meeting, you know, that sort of passive infighting, it holds the team back, but it also gets people second-guessing each other. It breeds cynicism and scepticism, help, you know, it makes people feel like they don't know if they're walking on solid ground with another person. So I do think you're right, it's equally damaging. And I think we've learned a lot more about it now. So I think, um, again, it comes back to as a leader, how can I make sure that I fight against this passive aggressive stuff in my team? So what are the practical things that I can do? Yeah, I, I think we could probably do a whole podcast on just that alone. So I might open the door to inviting you back at some point to explore that more fully. Sure thing. Uh, But I I also just want to talk briefly about finding space to decide what to do next. This is something that you're a bit of an expert on and also something that I get asked a lot about. Mm. Um, A lot of members are, and I think possibly it's post-COVID or during COVID, looking for work that's better suited to to them. Mm. Um, How do we find the space to know what we need? This is an issue I, I have a lot of empathy for, not only because I've been there like like most of us, but because I am seeing it and hearing it a lot over the last 12 months particularly. And I think the word you use, Helen, space is the key one because it's one of the things that we have very little of, particularly mental space, right? So a couple of things that I'd suggest. I think when you're in an environment that is difficult, if there is a lot of tension or you don't feel like you belong or it's just not doing it for you anymore. You're not feeling opportunity for growth and and engagement. I think it can be hard sometimes. It feels like it's an all-encompassing sort of bubble. And we sometimes lose sight of the fact that for many of us with privilege of choice, there are other options out there. And so sometimes we need to force that space to be able to, you know, give rise to what those opportunities could look like. Now, I'm not saying everyone should, you know, handing the resignation and just jump ship the second they're feeling dissatisfied. But I think we can create that space in different ways. So whether that is taking a physical space, you know, physical space break, and that might mean, you know, going out into nature for a lot of people, that's helpful, going for a walk. For others, you know, maybe it's about a change of scene, like have a weekend away if you can, or just get out of town. Or I think sometimes a change of scene can really help. But also you need to create some sort of way of um, having some self-reflection. And, 
you know, I, I think the questions that I would try to encourage people to ask of themselves are, you know, what is it right now that's creating this lack of satisfaction in you? Is it the work that you're doing? So is it work that just doesn't fulfill you anymore or you're ready for something new but it's not coming? Or is it the environment, you know? Is it the the people you're working with, the culture of the organisation? Is it something whereby that that's the, you know, you'd be happy to keep doing this work but it needs to be somewhere else? So I think even that can set you on a, a direction there to say, well, what could different look like? What would I be looking to do here? If it's, you know, I'm happy where I am but I just need different work, have a conversation with, you know, your leader or, or someone around what can we do here? I'm ready for growth. I'm ready to do, you know, can, can you give me an opportunity there? But if it's looking elsewhere, this is where I do encourage people to, after they've had the mental space and the reflection, who else can you reach out to? And, and I'm a big proponent of using your network, using those people in your world who know you, who will challenge you, um, and, and have those open conversations with them to say, not necessarily give you the answers, but just to call you on your stuff and say, are you maybe discounting yourself here or do you need to kind of push yourself further beyond your comfort zone? So having the space to think these things through and then using those sounding boards that you can really trust and rely on, so helpful. You said you've been at this point in your career. What did you do at that time? Had a few little mini breakdowns on some Sunday nights. Uh, Sunday nights became my, uh, you know, <laughs> the you know the world's caving in on me. Um, and I did that for a long time. I think looking back, actually, Helen, it was, you know, I stayed way longer in some places than I perhaps should have. And I hear that a lot from some clients, you know. And I don't, I, I don't know why. I've got some theories about that, but maybe for another day, another episode. I think what helped me was... I needed someone to sort of say, hey, are you okay, firstly? Like, this is not working for you. There seems to be, you know, some issues. You're not yourself. So I think that personally, I, I found that really confronting to hear, but I think it was the call out that I needed. And then I needed the support of, I had a, a trusted mentor who sat me aside, and I'll never forget, it was sitting, um, we grabbed lunch one day, busy cafe surrounded by all these people on their lunch breaks and I was just sitting there crying in front of in front of this guy who I'd known for, for years and years right from the beginning of my career. He just looked at me and said, you know, what the hell are you still doing there? You know, what is it? And then from there it, it just opened up a whole conversation around, you know, what what could different look like for you and reminded me about what I have to bring. So I think sometimes those those people in our world, that if we're lucky enough to have them, they're worth their weight in gold in those moments. Was part of the answer actually getting around to writing the book? <laughs> <laughs> because you did. I did. I did. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. That's That actually came several years later, believe it or not. So clearly, you know, we're, we're all... Um, you can't just sort of nail it one moment and then you're freed of any of those questions around, well, what next for me? I find it goes in stages and phases throughout our careers. Um, and for me, certainly it's the same. So, you know, I, I took that first step, you know, several years ago when I, I changed track in my career, did really well, but then, you know, I started to get restless. And so I was thinking about it, why not write a book? And then had to think about that for a couple of years before I, you know, finally got over myself and, and actually did the thing. So yes, I think phases and stages in career, there'll be sometimes when you're feeling great and it's a good amount of stretch and you're feeling pretty good about things. And then it reaches a point where this is not a good place for me or I'm really ready for something different. It's the growth edge. Space is so important. And um, I just 100% endorse that sentiment. I'd also add that in space, a lot of people decide they're going to write a book, but most of them don't do it. <laughs> so 
Rian, congratulations on writing the book um, Unlocked and How to Overcome the Barriers to Your Best Leadership because um, your advice is invaluable, outstanding and uh, always so on point. And I'm serious about the um, invitation to come back and explore some of those other concepts a bit more thoroughly. But great to talk to you today and um, thank you for being a part of the FW world. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Always happy to come back to you. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 